Well, good morning and welcome to worship. We're going to continue to do just that. We're going to continue to focus our hearts, affections, our minds, attentions on who God is, what God has done, and therefore who we are. We're going to together corporately proclaim and declare God's excellencies. Now, as we get started, I would be remiss if I did not yet again mention that we have an opportunity as the church to pray for all sorts of things, of course, here locally, regionally, nationally, and certainly internationally. And I've had conversations with many of you this week and last week about what all is transpiring in Israel and in Palestine. And it is a really gruesome, horrific, terrible thing that is going on over there. And so we, the people of God, In Christ, these brothers and sisters that we are gathered together, we have the opportunity in a very real sense to lock arms, stack hands, and approach the throne of God's grace with confidence and ask our Father to do what only He can do. Now, that's pretty amazing. And so it would be a great error or an overstep on my part if we didn't do that this morning as we start off together. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me. My words are not inspired. They're not infallible, they are not inerrant, but it is us as the people of God invoking our position in Christ to beseech the Father for the, for the sake of somebody else. So let's pray together. Father, there is chaos. There is suffering, there is pain, there is grief, there is death, there is uncertainty, there is doubt, there is anger, animosity, there is hatred, but you are holy, holy, holy. And in the midst of all of this desperation and ruin and death, God, would there be light in the darkness? I don't know how else to pray, quite confessionally, Father, for a de-escalation, for the minimization of tragedy and death and suffering. And yet we know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to your purpose, that there will never be any irredeemable harm for those who are yours. And so, Father, would the gospel continue to go forth? And in the midst of that, would you bring peace in the midst of strife? Would you somehow bring tranquility in the midst of tempest? God, it's all yours. And you are not surprised and you are not shocked. And so would you then continue to convict us and compel us to pray for these people, to empathize, to enter into some glimpse of what they may be experiencing, that our hearts would be burdened. We know that yours is. So, Father, we love you. Thank you for your goodness amidst all of your sovereignty. We pray all these things the only way we can, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, we are in a sermon series. This is our eighth week together, believe it or not, in our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, we're going to put these words on screen for you. No, not trying to train you not to bring your Bible. I want you to bring your Bible, but just in case, there's sort of a unifying focal point so that you're not just looking here while I read. I want you to see the text. I want you to interact with and engage in the Scriptures. I'm going to read our passage this morning. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're just going to walk through the first 11 verses. Decided to go ahead and split this in half because it's such a thick, rich chapter. Next week, Lord willing, we will tackle the second half of chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. This week, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. 
The Apostle Paul writes this. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you so incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's Word. Now, I suspect there are a few of us in this room who would rather prefer me to just skip right through verses 1 to 8. Come on, come on, get on with it. And let's talk about verses 9, 10. Real quick. Nope, nope, nope. Because it's all one big passage in which the Apostle Paul is communicating something to some people at a point in space for a purpose. And we have to understand all of that in its entirety or we run, we run the risk of what has been happening, unfortunately and regrettably, in the church for some 2,000 years of scooping out a particular verse and then using it like a pepper mill about the head, neck, and face of our society. And it's weird that it doesn't work that way. But it doesn't. There's a challenge, you see, that we face. Perhaps you've noticed that the church can be a little bit weird. And what's more... The people of the church can be a little bit weird. Don't look around. They see you. But it's true. It's possible. It happens. And about at the same time, it's also a little weird that church is filled with people that in reality are pretty much just like all the people that aren't in churches anywhere at all. But of course, there really is a difference, and it's sometimes difficult to really articulate. So, how is the church, how are we as the people of the church supposed to view ourselves? How are we supposed to view the world outside, the people of the world outside, and actual individuals that make up both populations? How do we actually view them and distinguish and discern? Well, if it's confusing and challenging for you, great news, you're not alone. It's been a challenge in the church for about 2,000 years. And believe it or not, it's really the theme and the thrust of the entire book of 1 Corinthians. They couldn't distinguish. This little church had been around for about four years. They couldn't quite distinguish and therefore operate with an understanding of what's the difference between the church and the non-church? What's the difference between all of us? And it's the sort of thing that made the Apostle Paul go absolutely crazy. He just couldn't get over it because he was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he knew the Old Testament better than anybody, and he understand better than anybody what God had done in Christ. This new thing called the church, he understood it, he marveled at it, he appreciated it, he gloried in it. 
And the people in Corinth then, potentially the people of East Texas at Bethel now, sometimes get confused and we smudge or we blur the lines between what is the church and what is not the church. Now, if you're familiar with Bethel, you'll know what's coming next. This is usually when I will drop what we call our big idea. Our big idea is nothing more than trying to answer the question, what is God saying in this text? That's it. We want to know, why is this passage in the Bible? Why in the world did this make it into this holy text? What was Paul trying to communicate to them there then? What is the point of this passage? That's our big idea. And so I will tell you, I've wrung my hands, I've, I've sat on my knees and prayed this week, I have kvetched to my wife that I can't, I can't get the point of this passage. I can't get these first 11 verses. I can't get them all ironed out. And then I would just get louder and faster. And for some reason, that doesn't help. I don't know why. But I finally arrived at what I really do believe is in the theological setting, we would call this the exegetical statement, what I just like to call the big idea, the point of this passage. It goes very, very simply like this. We're just like everybody else, except we're nothing like anybody else because God did some stuff. You heard it here first. It's what I came up with. That was the, the spirit illumining my heart, mind, soul, and body. Like, that is the thing. We're just like everybody else, except we're nothing like anybody else because God did some stuff. Now, if and when you wrap your heart, mind, soul, and body in relationships around that, then the stuff at the end of the passage will make a whole lot more sense. But if you don't, then you will be inclined, as many Christians have for 2,000 years, to pick up verses 9 and 10 like a cat of nine tails and go after other people. Wrong, wrong, a thousand times I say wrong. We are just like everybody else, except we're nothing like anybody else. Because God did some stuff. If the church doesn't understand this, it'll face enormous, immense challenges. Or if the church believes only part of this, that we're just like everybody else, period, and therefore we should behave just like everybody else, the church will have enormous problems. Or if the church begins to forget that we're like everybody else, but we're not like anybody else simply because we're awesome. Wrong! It's because God did some stuff. And so that's the point of this passage. Now, we're going to walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, as quickly and efficiently as possible, and then we'll see if we can apply it to our lives. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 here again. Remember our working theme for this little letter of 16 chapters is imperfect church, yea, verily, perfect gospel. This is one of those chapters because it's in every single chapter where we see the gospel so beautifully radiating off of the page. Remember that Paul spends 18 months in Corinth during his second missionary journey covered in Acts 18. He goes back to Antioch. He sits and recovers a little bit. He goes on his third missionary journey through Galatia, stops in Ephesus where he's there for about three years. While he's there, he gets a report about the Corinthians. He writes them a letter. They don't like it. They respond. That one didn't go well. And so he writes them this letter. Remember that the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians are all rebukes. So we got rebuke today. We got one more rebuke next Sunday. Then finally, we'll get into the last section, 7 through 16, which are all of the responses. Whereas the book of Colossians is dealing with all of these Eastern mysticisms, all these spiritual adventures and missing the point, 1 Corinthians is dealing with humanism, 
a very Western civilization issue of the elevation of the centrality of the human being as God. Can you just imagine a society that was humanistic? I know. Use your sanctified imagination. You'll get there. With all of that as a run-up, we are in chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? It's a rhetorical question. He knows that they are. He's already heard about this. There's a cultural thing that's happening in Corinth. Corinth was sort of new money. Corinth was a Roman colony, but it had been recently rebuilt, and it was more Roman than Rome. So what do, do, what do people do to pass the time in ancient Corinth when they don't work? No, no law-abiding citizen would, would dare demean himself or herself by working. That was, that was so, ugh, that's for the slaves. So what do they do? Well, I want to remind you, this is PP, pre-pickleball. And so all they would do is they would attack one another in the court systems. This, is, this was like the, uh, a live soap opera always playing itself out in the city center all the time. It was their main source of entertainment. If there wasn't theater happening or if there wasn't gladiatorial games going on, their main soap opera theater was going to the Agora and the city hall and watching all these people file grievances against one another. Someone was aloof to you at your last essential oils party. I know what I'll do. I'll make an accusation against them, and we'll go to the magistrate, and I'll say that they did all these kinds of things. Oh, then all the people who are friends of both sides would gather around, and you might be called to serve as a juror. In some cases of these local lawsuits, there might be as many as a 1,000 jurors. And the magistrate would sit on his elevated throne of judgment called the Bema Throne Judgment. Perhaps you've heard of it. And he was not a scrupulous dude. You would have to pay him off. You'd have to pay off um, some of the witnesses. You'd pay off as many of the jurors as you could. And anybody that ever voted against you on the jury or the magistrate was your sworn enemy for life. And so you would make all these alliances and all these allegiances, and it was Survivor Corinth, the 97th season. They would just keep going with all this. And this is just how society worked. And so the people in the church were like, we're just like everybody else. We'll do the same thing. Paul says, you're not like anybody else because God did some stuff. What are you talking about? This is what he says. I hear you have grievance against another. Does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous? Now, there's a bunch of play on words here. He's going to use the word adikaio, not righteous. There's dikaio, which is righteous. That's what you are, the saints. You are the dikaio. You are the righteous ones. Don't feel like it, do you? It's okay. You should see my point of view. <laughs> and I know yours, and I know yours. And yet, the scriptures say, the dikaio, the righteous, you're going to the adikaio, the unrighteous. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous and of these unrighteous, unregenerate, unredeemed, unbelieving authorities who are supposed to be the representatives of law and judicial justice, but they aren't. Instead of the saints, that's where you should be going because don't you remember who you are? Verse two, or do you not know? Now, if you're the kind of person that takes notes in your Bible or uses a pen in your Bible, underline that. And if you're not the kind of person that does that, be healed. Become that person today. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that pen. Become the kind of person that makes a note in your Bible. Six times in this chapter, six, Paul will say, or do you not know what's the implication? You should. I was there for 18 months 
lecturing at least four to five hours every single day except the Sabbath. You should know that all the stuff he's going to talk through here is not novel information. Do you not know? Have you forgotten? Oh, see, you have forgotten. See, we're just like everyone else, but we're not like anybody else because God did some stuff. Okay, verse two. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Have y'all forgotten? The saints will judge the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, remember, I've already mentioned Paul was a Pharisee, a Pharisee, a Jew of Jews. He knew Old Testament law and prophets better than anybody. Paul has in mind, wait a minute, this is the same thing all over again. He has in mind way back in the book of Deuteronomy when it talks about unequal business practice or defrauding another countryman, another Israelite. You know what God calls that practice? An abomination to cheat someone else in your covenant community, to be dishonored. It is an abomination. It has the flavor and the scent of Genesis 13 when Abraham and Lot and their herdsmen begin to quarrel with one another and all the Canaanites go... Silly, silly Abrahamic tribes. They can't even get along. And they were defamed. Yahweh's name was degraded because of Abraham and Lot. And so they had to make a decision. It's such a big deal. Paul says, do you not know? Have you forgotten? You will be judges. You're taking your cases to judges, but you yourselves are gonna be judges. Look at verse two. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, why is Paul going to say that? Surely he means like, C.S. Lewis and my grandmother. No, he means the saints, those who are in Christ. Now, why would Paul say such a thing? Because Paul knows Daniel chapter seven very, very well. Let me read this to you. Daniel chapter seven, verse 22. says that the ancient of days comes and he takes his seat and he is approached by one like a son of man. This other divine being approaches the ancient of days and he's handed the scroll Verse 722, until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the most high and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Paul really did believe that there was world to come. There was the present age of suffering and shame and death and scarcity, but there would come a time when Messiah would come again and he would rule legally, literally and logistically. And the administration of justice in that kingdom of God is to be done by the sons of God, not angels, not angels. Justice will be administered in that messianic kingdom, first by his begotten, that's Christ, and then by his adopted. Now that's amazing. Don't you know who and whose you are? Eternally. Yes, higher standing than the angels. Now, what is Paul saying here in Corinthians? Don't you know you'll judge angels? He's not saying that when angels have car wrecks in heaven, you're gonna have to figure that part out. No, no, it's an allusion to what he'd already taught them, which was, hey, Christ is coming again and we shall return with him and we will be a part of the administration and the distribution of judgment on fallen angels. That's astonishing. Now, will we also have higher standing than holy, glorious angels? Yes. The angels are massive, mighty, wonderful beings, but they're never called adopted. Instead, it is these people who were created in God's image, who rebelled, who were marred and corrupt by sin, but yet loved and redeemed thereby who are adopted, brought into the house, raised up, and given the title firstborn male heir. Those people 
will rule my cosmos for eternity. Do you not know this? Paul says, do you all realize that in the coming kingdom, you will actually be a part of the administration and the legislative government of Christ over the earth. And that even includes judgment on fallen angels and dispatching, distributing the holy angels. And you can't even decide in-house about whose Tupperware that is. It's Maud's casserole. It's her dish. Get over it. You don't have to go to the courts and have some corrupt magistrate drag the name of Jesus down through the mud. You're going to have somebody in unrighteousness decide, oy vey, you're taking it to a pagan judge in unrighteousness. May it never be. We say it all the time because we as a church need to hear it again and again and again. The kingdom has come, the kingdom is come, and the kingdom is coming. We live in the already and the not yet. Our conduct as a colony prepares the way for the coming of the Christ with his kingdom and that age and its administration in full. This matters. How we deal with one another matters massively. He says, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Rhetorical question, short answer, yes, apparently so. Remember, this little church is only four years old, but they've already established a good amount of notoriety in the community. And people are going, y'all are just like us. You're no different at all. Well, they were right. We're just like everybody else. And we're nothing like anybody else because God did some stuff. Verse three, do you not know, this is that expression again, or do you not know, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then uh, matters pertaining to this life? Why are you handing off the small things? There are no small things. You, you are to be a saint of God. Then, certainly, now, certainly, both and, already and not yet. Verse four, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? You're bringing lawsuits before people who I wouldn't trust to teach a Sunday school lesson to two-year-olds because they're not saints, they're not redeemed. They don't have spiritual wisdom, discernment, and insight. Surely, you've got somebody that can address these kinds of things in-house, surely, right? We're just like everybody else, but we're not anything like anybody else because God did some stuff. You must remember that. Verse five, I say this to your shame. Shame, shame on you. I like to say frequently that shame is not of our God, shame is of the enemy. Guilt is of, our, is of our God. But in this case, Paul's so furious and frustrated about it, he goes, no, shame on you because you have brought shame into the covenant community. You've brought shame into our colony. Verse five, I say this to your shame. Can it be, and this is some of the most biting sarcasm and irony in the entirety of 1 Corinthians. He says, can it be that there is no one among you who is wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Remember, the whole first five chapters, they were claiming that they were wise, like the sophists, those on the outside who would travel through town and make everyone think how smart and shiny they were. And it's like, oh, so, so you guys think you're wise, do you? You can't even define whose peach candle that is? Come on already. You don't need to go bribe a magistrate over that. Count the cost. You're, you're making such a big deal of these things. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. This is a travesty to the colony of Christ, Paul says. 
There should have been people who could have mediated and resolved. God will see to that, whether a group of elders or some deacons or some other ministry leaders, people who have demonstrated wisdom and their capacities to handle the scriptures. This happens in our church from time to time. I'll get an email, I'll get a call. Hey, this is going on, what do I do? I make about one, maybe two phone calls. The matter's resolved in 30 minutes. It's the way things are supposed to work. Paul says, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You've already blown it. You've already lost. Proverbs 22 verse one says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. But they were giving that away because they were trying to be just like everybody else. But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even, oh, sorry, verse seven, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So he's gonna address the plaintiff, the guy making the accusation, who's brought this thing to a court that Paul's heard of. Why not just go ahead and lose $100? Because you know how much you lose if you lose $100? Carry the one. About $100 worth. And you don't get that back. You know how much the church loses if the church loses $100 worth of integrity? Millions. And we don't get that back. So you trust God. No, not, not karma. Not what comes around goes around. You might just lose that $100 worth it. Remember whose you are. Remember who you represent. It's the feeling of those four fingers of my father as I was leaving the house in the early 80s and I was about to walk out the door and he'd go, remember your last name, boy which was a nice proactive threat. You mess up my name, I mess up your whole countenance, right? You, you, you don't wanna do that. It's better to lose $100 and you might not get the back. Then the church suffers such inglorious indignity as that. It's you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brother. So he addresses the plaintiff. It'd have been better for you just to lose the money. You got done wrong. That's sorry, and I'm sorry, but the church is worth more than that. And then he very subtly doesn't see it so much in the English translation there in verse eight. He pivots and he talks to the defendant. And now for you, apparently what was going on is not even up for debate. Like the report that Paul gets, this actually was open and shut, airtight, ironclad case. And you there in verse eight, you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brother. You should have just taken the hit. You should have never started this. Now this is being read aloud in the church house. Who was ever home they're meeting in. So the first guy, the plaintiff was here and he's like, that's right, you get him, Paul. Then the second guy hears this, ooh, ah. And so everyone that, you know how this works, everyone in the congregation looks at him like when your phone goes off and everyone goes, (laughs) same kind of deal, nothing's changed, see? Or do you not know? Now, please, as I go to verse nine, please, please, please understand that verse nine, I know, I know, you have to brace yourself. I hope you're all sitting down. Tremendous insight here. Verse nine comes immediately after verse eight. I know, I know. He's making a point. It's not one of these verses we just get to melon ball or right out of the text. No, he's making connective. It's a strange word order, but he's making a connection. Or do you not know, the third time. You can use it three more times next week in our passage. Or do you not know, verse nine, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What is his point? You will inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous will not. See, 
We're just like everybody else. And we're nothing like anybody else because God did some stuff. Don't you, don't you know you're trying to behave like the unrighteous? But don't you understand, verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, one of Paul's favorite little expressions. Why would he say, do not be deceived? Short answer, because they were deceived. They had bought the lie. We saw this in chapter five. They were operating under the whisper campaign of the enemy that it doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. God won't mind. He doesn't care. He's not really there. Lies, lies, lies. Do not be deceived. Or maybe perhaps better, stop being deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Why is he saying these things? Well, listen. If you want to deep dive on any of this stuff, read the book of Titus, read Romans 1, read Romans 6, read 1 Corinthians 6, and other places. Not to mention Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's a lot in there. Now, I don't want to single out any one of these things other than to say he is equating unrighteousness with a pattern of lifestyle from those for whom God has not done the stuff. So, so why would you trust them, the adikoi, the unrighteous, over? don't you know whose you are? You have been appointed judges of the coming kingdom, so live in the current kingdom as though that were true. So let me just very briefly, sexually immoral. I'm not gonna unpack this a whole lot. It's just cut and dried, it's black and white, it's unambiguous and everybody agrees. Whether they like it or not, I cannot say. It is any sexual activity outside the confines of covenantal marriage between husband and wife. Boom! Not between man and a woman, not between this and that. Not between, no, no, the covenantal confines of marriage between husband and wife, anything around, beyond, above, below that is sin. The text reads me. I don't read the text. This is what it says. But then it unpacks it a little bit further. Do you not be deceived? Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters those who put other things in the center of their lives and who will stop at nothing to get it. It might be money, it might be career, it might be fame, it might be approval and acceptance, it might be family, it might be all kinds of good things. In this context, it literally was things that you were going outside of the home in search of fulfillment. Temple of Aphrodite had a thousand cultic priestess, prostitutes, that kind of a thing. So there's that what's going on nor idolatry, nor, and then we have this word, adulterers and those who practice homosexuality. Super brief here. Here are two different words, and it's not adulterers. The ESV sanitizes it. That's fine. It's the soft or effeminate. The next word is very specifically, directly, homosexual males. Won't go into it. There's some anatomical descriptions there. Don't use your imaginations. In that context and in that culture, there was a temple prostitute, a male prostitute, who would entice, as usually as a young man, who would entice other uh, worshipers at the temple, called in Greek a malakoi. This was made famous when Emperor Nero married a malakoi, a young boy named Sporos. It's documented in all of the Roman Empire histories. So he married a malakoi. Later, he married another dude, an arsenicoite. And that's, that's a different kind of guy. That's the actual practitioner of such things. Paul says, that's not who we are. It was normative in that society. 14 of the first 15 Caesars practiced homosexuality 
or at least bisexuality. 14 of the first 15. Should we therefore then interpret that and go, see, it's normal. Let's port that into our society. That's a common argument. That's kind of like saying, you remember when the Canaanites used to take their firstborn baby boys and they'd grease them up and they'd put them in a brass bull and roast them alive? We should do that too because that was normative. No, no, again, no. It is unrighteous. And ah, decoye. It is not righteous. It is outside of God's plan. I love G.K. Chesterton. He put it this way. Men do not differ much about what things they call evils. They differ enormously about what evils they will call excusable. Now that is a trumpet blast into our society. But the amazing thing is Paul is equating doing bad business, defrauding one another with that level of depravity. We don't like to think of it that way. We prefer excusable sin. And in that way, we're just like everybody else. But we're not like anybody else because God did some stuff. All right, I'm gonna move on past that. I'm gonna give you some of these words. Verse 10, nor thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the revilers. Revilers has the idea of gossips and slanders who are defaming others' character by tearing them down verbally, which was happening in those courts. Nor swindlers, those who are uh, crooking people who are uh, doing bad business. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a very big, serious deal. And, and the, the, the refrain of the culture and the time was, hey, hey, the wives don't matter about any of these things. Ah, but God minds. God cares. Those ways are not his ways. Those ways, all of them are societally and communally destructive always. And he says, and those are the kinds of people that you want judging your in-house cases? Come now. Is there not anyone who can judge on your behalf? Now, let me be very careful and very clear here. There have been horrible instances in the history of the church where maybe a disagreement happened in a civil level between church members. That's a thing. The church should look into that. Then there are issues in which a criminal offense occurs. At that point, this text is not talking about criminal offenses. At that point, we jump the confines of the colony. Any criminal activity whatsoever must, by law, be reported to the local authorities. And let me also say, praise God, the context in which we live and the period in which we live, our judicial system is not flawless, and yet it is built on largely a Judeo-Christian ethic in which righteousness is the plan based on a, a, a static document. So we're not talking about the same kind of court system that they had in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Completely unrighteous in those contexts. Ours is, and so I just want to reiterate, if there's ever anything that happens that is criminal, we are outside the bounds of the confines of the colony. That must go to the law of the land. I want to be super clear about that. Well, verse 11 Let's see, what day is it? Sunday. Yeah, this is my favorite verse in the Bible uh, today. It might change again tomorrow, but this is my favorite verse. I want you to look at the words here. Look at the words in verse 11. And such were some of you. If you just bored and have nothing else to do, look back at verses 9 and 10 and see the laundry list the dirty laundry list. And he's writing to the church, the saints, <laughs> who will be handed judgment of the cosmos, first by the begotten, then by the adopted. And such were some of you. Does Paul like bite his finger? Oh, that's so distasteful and shameful and I can't. No, he glories in the gospel. This is the stuff that God did. 
such were some of you, past tense, but you were washed. I'll say this again in the book of Titus. You were washed. You were sanctified. It's happened already, and it's happening, and it'll happen. You were made holy. In the mind of God, he sees only the finished work of Christ on the cross. He sees everything in you, thought, word, and deed as holy. Why? Because all of that filth from verses 9 and 10 has been washed. And you were justified, found guilty, but declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the agency. It's an amazing thing. We're just like everybody else, except we're nothing like anybody else because God did some stuff. I love the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul loved Old Testament Scripture. And when he says, and you were washed, we, sitting in the 21st century in the Western Hemisphere in East Texas, might tend to jump to the idea of baptism. And perhaps there's a flicker of hint toward that. It's not what Paul's talking about. The Apostle Paul is talking about uh, Ezekiel chapter 16. If I had the time, we'd go through it. It's one of the most graphic and grotesque passages in all of your Bible. Ezekiel 16 talks about a child at birth, discarded, abandoned, covered in blood, and disgusting. And God walks by and takes this huddled, puddled mess and washes, and raises, and washes, and raises, and nurtures, and knows, and loves, and edifies, and equips, and raises her up to beauty, to splendor, and he marries her. It's the nation of Israel. And what ends up being true of Israel, God does in Christ for people like you and me, who were such things, but are no longer, because God did some stuff. The whole Trinitarian Godhead comes to bear in our salvation. Aren't you glad? It is the Father who justifies, who finds us guilty, but declares us righteous. The Son is his provision and his sacrifice is in the business of sanctifying us in him all by the agency of the Holy Spirit of God himself. So, first half of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, how can we very quickly apply this to our lives. Just want to say it again, this not clever, not creative, big idea, but I love it because I needed to hear the reminder. We're just like everybody else, except we're nothing like anybody else because God did some stuff. And so point number one goes like this. The sins of the culture become the sins of the church. Just by a gravity, because of depravity and that gravity, that's what happens. We are, by nature, absorbent species, aren't we? Particularly when we each have experiences and histories and we gather together and all that familiarity throughout the week and compounded over a lifetime, when we gather corporately, all that very subtly becomes normative. Out there, it gets sanitized and normalized as we discuss it in here. It doesn't take long for the clear, bright lines and boundaries established by God to get blurry and smudgy. And before long, we've invited worldliness right into our midst, all under the banner of tolerance and acceptance and love and even evangelism. But God is never, ever in the business of compromise. Just hear that no 
that. And don't take my word for it. Read the scriptures. In the book of Revelation, end of chapter two, Jesus writes a letter to the church at Pergamum, not very far at all from Ephesus where Paul sits when he writes Corinthians. And his condemnation of them, not the removal of their salvation, but is their willingness to compromise with the culture. God has no time, no patience for cultural compromise. And then if you think God still might be a little bit in the business of compromise, I invite you and I remind you to look at the cross. Do you see the father compromising with what the son became? The son who had been with God in perfect fellowship, community, harmony, love, joy for all eternity past becomes my, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. He became it and the father held nothing back. Isaiah said he was pleased to crush his son. No compromise. No, we stay rooted and grounded in God's word, not out of piety or pharisaical legalism, but to know and think God's thoughts after him, that this church would continue to be a refuge of righteousness in the midst of unrighteousness. The world needs that. See, we're just like everybody else, except we're nothing like anybody else because God did some stuff. Point two, the gospel is to be worked out in the real world. I'm so thankful the fact that we get to repeat the gospel around here as often as we do. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. Now that is so much more than just having our sin forgiven and going to heaven when we die. So much more. It means we are living from the future in the present. We are a spirit people that walk around looking exactly the same as everyone else we encounter, but yet there's a spiritual gravity and light that shines in the heavenly places that we can't even yet fully discern. And yet God uses us. He uses that to subtly or subconsciously draw those in darkness to light and to life. So how we conduct our affairs in the marketplace are to be manifestations of the truth of the gospel. I'm willing to lose if it means that the name of Christ is magnified or at the very least not minimized in any way. How we do business, how we behave in public spaces, how we treat our spouses, how we engage with our neighbors. Yes, even the ones whose tree keeps falling on my internet line. I'm not naming names. I'm just saying it's to the east. It's really frustrating, but I, it's okay. It's all right. These are the places where our lives evidence the transformation that was affected by our triune God. It does take practice. It even takes rehearsal. But this is what distinguishes us from the rest of the population with whom we live. We're just like everybody else, except we're nothing like anybody else because God did some stuff. Third point. We live in a tension between the indicative and the imperative. Ooh, greeky, geeky, wordy, nerdy. But this is the Christian life. We live in the tension between the indicative and the imperative. All throughout the Old Testament, you'll see it again and again and again. God will say to the Israelites, I've given you the land. Go take it. I've done it already. Now go do it. I have made the way. It is finished in my mind. It is done. Now go do it. And that same refrain rolls through even the New Testament. And so it's very easy to get that wrong and fall on one side of the road or the other into some great grievous error, or dare I even say, a heresy. If we throw up our hands and we say, well, God is sovereign, he's gonna handle everything anyway, then we miss the point of our conversion. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 says, we were saved to do his good work. 
God is sovereign. He's done it. Now go do it. And he gets the glory. And somehow he gives us reward. We do not get to just sit around basking lazily under the sovereignty of God. That is error. On the other hand, we can fall on the other side of error and begin to believe that God has his hands functionally off the wheel. And if it's to be, it's up to me. I have to get to work. I have to do all of this stuff. Nope. That's functional deism. And that is just as much a bad witness in the world. This passage and virtually every other text is showing the glorious opportunity we have as God's people to live and operate with purpose and fulfillment because God has done the work and made ready the way for us to be his hands and his feet in this age. We say it all the time. We'll say it again. How would Jesus live his life if he was living it through you and through me? In this age, well, he is. How's business? Fourth point. The Spirit is the mark of the new age. I mentioned this already. The Spirit, not a new age movement, of the new age. I love 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, because Paul so marvelously summarizes our salvation to the uttermost, to the combined work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We do not merely cling and claim some written body of propositional truth called the Bible. Although we love God's Word, and we certainly cherish the written Word of God, we are the people the church, we are the first people, the church, to ever be permanently indwelled and eternally sealed by the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Nobody in the Old Testament was ever permanently indwelled or sealed by the Holy Spirit. Nobody, not Moses, not Abraham, not David, not the prophets. It's you and me, permanently, forever. And so we say it all the time. God could literally not be closer than he is right now because of the indwelling spirit of every believer. So I would like to remind you and invite you to mindfully recognize that God is present by his spirit, to take advantage of that nearness in prayer and in every walking around moment or conversation or contact of your life because of the gospel. God literally walks and moves with you in every aspect of your life. Don't look away. Don't look away. Don't shush the spirit, Paul says. Every conversation with your spouse, every parenting moment with your kid, every opportunity to honor your aging parents, your neighbors, your coworkers, the people who don't vote like you, who drive you crazy. Do you realize that the spirit of God is present in you? See, we're just like everybody else and we are nothing like anybody else because of God doing some stuff, namely sending his spirit to indwell every believer. You know, I titled this sermon, Judges. I haven't really talked about judges all that much, but I talked about judges because of the centrality of people who would one day be judges in Christ's kingdom, us, taking their cases in that context to unrighteous judges. And it reminds me of the book of Judges, of course, full of characters who are supposed to rule and judge for Israel, the covenant community of God on earth. The job of the judge, incidentally, just like Jethro tells Moses in Exodus 18, was to distribute people who would point people to God's statutes. That's the job of a judge. There is a God, here's his righteousness codified. That's the job of a judge. How did those judges do? Not so great. How did the judges in the book of Judges do? Not so great. And so Israel falls and it falls and it falls. But then Jesus Christ 
comes and he shows us exactly what it looks like to willingly lose for the sake of another and for the sake of a covenant community. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead, to hold up the statutes of God, to decide on all matters of individual and communal life in thought, word, and deed. Praise God that for us, the people of the church, that judgment has happened already at the cross because our king was found worthy to live and die in our place. He has come. He will come again until such time we get to be his presence in this place, fulfilling his purpose. See, we're just like everybody else, except we're nothing like anybody else because God did some stuff. And praise God that he did. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much this morning for your word, for your spirit, and that we, your people, get to benefit and be blessed so much by both of those things. And so, Father, your plan in this world is to continue to unleash these people that you love into dark and dying circumstances. And so would you give us wisdom? Would you equip us for every good work? Father, we pray for those that may be here this morning that are in relationships with some of us this morning who don't know you, who are outside, that you would do the stuff, that you would wash, that you would justify, that you would sanctify, that you would lead them out of death into life, that you would lead them irresistibly by your spirit into light and life and purpose and fulfillment and joy. And for the rest of us, Father, would you remind us yet again that we are to be in the world but not of the world. And yet, like Jesus, we are to be gravitationally pulling people because of holiness in the presence of your spirit. So we pray, God, that you would continue to affect the ministry of this church and this campus and this community. And we pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.